1: Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and it being Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh, and we have a special guest for our conversation.
0: What?
1: We do, I know. What about it, Tim? You would you, Tim? Would you like to
0: introduce our special guests? Just take over well, the hosting I, duties for a second. I don't know that I'll do an adequate job of like laying out Heidi White's um, outstanding and CV. Spoiler:
2: What? Well, I was going to, to say, name.
0: I was going to
1: say that I don't have anything to say that's nice about her. So, if you would take over for me, then. Uh, no, just kidding. We are joined by Heidi White. We have plenty of nice things to say about her. She's a good friend of all of us, and she is a uh, great person to talk books with. And I thought, since we're talking about a book that is from the perspective of a woman, we needed. Uh, we needed to have less male dominance. Let's put it that way um, on this podcast. So we brought in some, you know, some more female perspective. So Heidi, uh, welcome to Close Reads. Thanks for joining us.
2: Yes, welcome. Oh no, did we lose Heidi, her? I
1: think you're muted. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yes. There we go. <laughs>
1: Woo! Touching go.
3: That's oh, so weird. All right. Well, hey, thank you all <laughs> for having me. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Hey Heidi, have you read this book before? Yes. Okay. Yes, okay. I have indeed. Okay.
2: Okay, so full disclosure, Heidi and I had a pre-close reads like for hours this morning. <laughs> we'll try to we'll try to bring y'all into it.
1: <laughs> uh, a pre-close reads like practice show?
2: Not a practice show. I was sobbing hysterically, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like the big tears. My book was wet, and I was trying to underline through wet pages. It was just a mess. So that was so a. So kind of fast. like when
1: Graham. Would drop his books in the bathtub or fall asleep in his bathtub. Okay, okay. so
2: I thought about texting you guys and just being like, "Let's talk about being a woman," but I just I went a different way.
1: Did that seem weird? I mean, I don't. Why does that be weird? Should
2: I? Should I? Okay, I'll group text with Heidi and y'all about being a woman. No,
1: on second thought, it's all right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, we um, Heidi, when you were like muted there for a second, right? um, I was sort of like, maybe I offended her by saying that I didn't have anything nice to say about her. Because normally you have a good sense of humor, but I didn't hear any chuckling or laughing. <laughs> it took me well, just to I did of it on her mic
3: and stormed off. <laughs> I did mute it to weep, tears and others. Oh, okay. I have wet pages all over my book and okay. I, and I are in the same boat. I know. <laughs> they need to have the <laughs> special Kleenex edition of this book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like comes with a pack of of kleenex on the side
2: exactly. it's extra soft for women right oh, okay. exactly okay.
0: hey hey while we're on this subject can i just tell you guys i hope i didn't tell the story on the air last week a little a funny little story about um, being a woman be, yeah about female empowerment <laughs> that happened last week my careful so, careful i have been working no, no no you're gonna love this tread lightly <laughs> um i've been working I've on this backup
2: this, now tim so okay
0: i know i know i've been working on this cabin with my friend andrew that's on their property and you know we were kind of like putting the finishing touches on this thing and their andrew and marianne's children are my godchildren and their oldest daughter uh is eight years old she can comes out her name's penny she comes out to the cabin and, and you know she's surveying it and there's a loft built into the cabin so she takes the stairs up to the loft and she's on the top step of the stairs which is a good six feet off the ground and she says i'm gonna jump and her mom says no you're not (laughs) and she says yes i am and i want you to catch me and she and marion says no i'm not gonna catch you you need to come down you know they need to go do something (laughs) and And so she's about to jump, and Marion says, I'm not going to catch you. And Penny says, Mom, why won't you support me as a woman? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh, it made me laugh so hard. And Marion had, like, a very clever quip about, because I also believe in the laws of physics, honey.
3: Right? (laughs) Yes.
1: Thank
2: you. I'm deeply offended by everything about this story.
1: (laughs) You don't say. Um, Um. So we uh, we are here to talk about Hannah Coulter, um, Wendell Berry's novel. From what is that? Two thousand two, two thousand three, something like 2004, that. Two thousand
2: four, according to the copyright, which surprised me that it was okay. Like that, I, I, I yeah. guess I'm old enough that two thousand four seems like the other day. <laughs>
3: yeah, that's true. My kids
2: okay. laugh that I have that I have two I have two time frames: a long time ago and the other day. And they say it's <laughs> all the same time frame.
1: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like my four-year-old. Um, so you have the time, the time frame of time frames of a four-year-old. That's interesting. I have childlike one heart, Yes, I accept that. I accept that. <laughs> that is a nice angle. Of, that's a nice take on that. Um, we are here to talk about Hannah Coulter. As I said, um, we did uh, Jaber Crow. What was that? Towards the beginning, a couple of years ago. Towards oh, the beginning, was of the, the run first of the show?
2: full-length novel we did.
1: Okay. Um, So those of you who have been listening for a long time or maybe who went back and listened, I know a lot of people did that, uh, you'll be familiar with some of the themes and ideas and uh, even some of the characters that are going to get presented in Hannah Coulter. It is not a terribly long book, so we'll probably do it in um, three episodes plus the Q&A, I I think that's probably the best thing to do. And if we need to do an extra bonus episode, another Q&A or something, because we need to cover more ground or just cover more uh, more themes or answer more questions, we can do that. We can add some flexibility into it. Uh, before we dive into the conversation though, I need to say a quick word from our sponsor which is Augustine College in the United States. Augustine College is, uh, is back, actually based in Canada, and they have been partnering with us for uh, several years at our conferences and things like that. They've sent speakers to our conferences and you know all that sort of thing. But they have a new program. It's a pioneering program um, of the Augustine College in the U.S. version, the U.S. version of Augustine College. So This is a one-year Christian classical liberal arts program, which is nestled in the beautiful mountains of Blacksburg, Virginia, which... I can personally attest to their to their beauty. It's a beautiful place. Um, and they have scholarships available for early applicants. So if you're interested um, and you want to learn how to ask the right questions and find the truth, then you can head over to truthisbeautiful.org uh, and make sure you cut that full link. That's truthisbeautiful.org. And that's for the Augustine College in the U.S., uh, their, pro- their one-year program in the U.S. So um, if you're looking for a gap year type program or you want to just further your education or you have a student who's not exactly sure what they want to do, could be an ideal ideal option for you, especially if you are living in the East Coast. So again, that is, Truth is Beautiful, truthisbeautiful.org to learn more about that. So thanks to them for partnering with us to make Close Reads possible. Uh, and of course, I want to say quickly before we dive in any further, thanks to everyone who has been uh, supporting the show through Patreon or by being a member of the Facebook group. The conversation there is, as always, uh, wonderful and inspiring and uh, a little bit weird, um, but that's, that's that's to be expected and that's good. And um, of course, Very to everybody who's
2: with the theme of this show.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and of course, to everybody who has been um, supporting us financially through Patreon, we really appreciate that. Um, if you want to learn how you can do that or you want some of the gifts that we give uh, for Patreon, donors including bonus podcasts mugs t-shirts all that sort of thing you can go to patreon.com slash closereads and if you donated last month for the first time your uh, gifts your rewards whatever we're calling them those are on the way and you should see those soon so all right the business is out of the way let's talk about a book that is um i was gonna say it's like the opposite of all business but i don't want to know that i want to say that exactly so um i want to Ask you okay, each a little so bit. Okay, so wait
2: before you. So oh, well, all right, go ahead. And, I just have <laughs> something I want to make sure we talk about before we like jump into the discussion of the book proper. But if you're just asking for like first impressions, go go ahead and do your. Well, thing. I'm
1: not even going to ask about first impressions. Actually, what I want to know is from each of you um, where you first met Wendell Berry. Hmm. So we'll go to Heidi first as the guest. We'll let her let her have the first crack at answering that question. So where did you? Where was your first experience with uh, with Wendell Berry and Wendell Berry's work?
3: Well, what a perfect conversation to start this with, because my first experience with Wendell Berry was Hannah Coulter. Mm -hmm. When my children were babies, Lucy was, Mm. I remember her taking a nap. And when she was just a newborn and my son Jack was two and we lived in the suburbs and someone had recommended Hannah Coulter to me. And I remember reading it and just... It had a profound impact on my life. Of course, I read every other thing by Wendell Berry after that. And it turns out that Jaber Crow is indeed my favorite. But Hannah Coulter is special to me because it's the first one. Hmm. And we made life decisions as a result of reading this book.
1: Well, that sounds like something we're going to have to hear more about Yeah. <laughs> as we talk about this over the next few weeks. And um, so did you read this when it had first come out? Or was it...
3: No, how old, it was how a few years Lizzie? after. Okay. That's a few years after. I didn't know that it had only been published in two thousand and four until just a few minutes ago. Okay, uh, so okay. it was a new book at the time. It was probably well, it was probably two thousand and eight when I read it.
1: Okay, okay. Angelina, you're. You, when did you first meet Wendell Berry? And I don't mean in person. We all know you've met him in
0: person.
2: <laughs> when we had our moment. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact date. Maybe around two thousand and three. I. I started just running into people who were talking about Wendell Berry. And of course I had my firm, you know, talk to me when he's dead moment, you know, cause I don't read, <laughs> <laughs> cause I don't read, don't read live authors. Like, oh,
1: he's 80. That's fine.
2: Well, kind of, no, but I just kept hearing about him. And um, then a couple of things happened at once. One, some, I wish I could remember where, but like some just kind of like off comment that your dad made where he said, Jaber Crow is based on the structure of the divine comedy, which of course we talked about in the podcast. Well, that that I felt like that gave me a loophole with this book. Like, well, it's basically old, right? <laughs> at the it's same the time.
3: Of age.
2: Yeah, at the same time I went to a library sale and there on the table was a hardback copy copy of Jaber Crow. And I was like those, hmm. I was like Kismet, right? So I bought it and I read it with, with very low expectations and was just um, completely smitten and deeply moved. Uh, and Jaber Crow is still my favorite. And the next thing I read after that was Hannah Coulter, which apparently I read it right when it came out, um, but I did not realize that. It mm. was, um, it was uh, you know how Christian audio does a au- free audio book a month? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, one time Hannah Coulter was the free book. Mm. Um, and so that, is, that was when I read, listened to Hannah Coulter and absolutely loved it. It was just back to back. But in my experience, um, I had tried to read some of his essays and just really could not, and I'm sure this has a lot to do with just me as a person, because I think other people have said they had the opposite experience, that the essays helped them understand the books. In my case, I had a hard time connecting with the essays until I read Jaber Crow, after which I felt like I understood the world he inhabited, and then the essays made much more sense to me. Hmm. So, yes, I've been a fan since the opening lines of Jaber (laughs) Crow.
1: uh let's see that so would you have been would this been like the early 2000s or would that had just come out or, or was it later on i mean like do you know when you first read jay Crow?
2: yeah this would have been would like it, 2003 we, we
1: established that you have no idea about it's just like yeah i'm day. trying
2: yeah i'm honestly trying is to it the other day
1: or pregnant. a long time like,
2: ago <laughs> like that's my bit was i pregnant or did i have a baby right after i read jay Crow? like that's that is what i'm trying to remember so i was either i think that's true of a lot of moms yeah, I know, right? This was sometime around baby number three, so there you go. So it would have been around two thousand four.
1: Bethany and I always joke about how we tell time, like how we remember things, because she'll always say what you just said. Like, was I pregnant? What was what was going on with the kids at this time? And I'll be like, what was the sporting event that I was thinking that was going on at that time? <laughs> it's like, how close was this to the super? You know, whatever. That I tell time, I can remember random oh, sporting things. Oh, that was the year like the I-
2: Lakers swept in seven. Yes, okay, I remember. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i know i was just gonna say i'm not even gonna make the say, comment about how sweeping come on no I, I know my
2: basketball that was an intentional joke
1: i know I, i'm just kidding uh the question was do i tease angelina or do i not and the answer was definitely do it okay Tim. i've
2: cried a lot today <laughs> just be forewarned i have cried a lot today
1: <laughs> fair enough uh i tim we may want to be on our toes for the next few weeks uh uh-huh. Um, Tim, what was your first was was when we did no, Jay on the show? Your first my Wendell Berry experience, novel
0: experience. My first experience with Wendell Berry was okay. I bought. I had heard his name somewhere among friends of mine, uh, and I bought the collection of essays "What Are People For." And I think I and I bought it. I believe I was in Buckhead, which yeah, is this yeah. really wealthy part of Atlanta, and I remember taking the book going to a Starbucks and you know buying some tall disgusting sugary drink and sitting outside underneath all of the lights and skyscrapers of Buckhead and beginning to read what are people for and I remember you know being an hour into it and looking at what I was doing and feeling like I like something was wrong with my life that I had this disposable cup, I was living amid all this, I wasn't living, but I, at least for the moment, was amid all this kind of glass and plastic and about as far away from a farm as you could possibly be and still be in the state of Georgia. And I'm I kind of like, there's some, like, some serious self-loathing for a little while. In fairness, I was living on a farm in North Georgia. I was just in town in Buckhead, like visiting for some reason. So that was my first experience, and but I, my conversion moment was reading the Mad Farmer Liberation Front that poem. Which, when I read that, I just thought,
1: "The poem, right? oh,
0: I, yeah. I am now on board his team." I was, I think, I was already, but that was just really singular.
2: Yes, the last line of that poem: "Is practice resurrection," which is written on an index card right on top of my computer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's
2: my daily so- mantra: practice resurrection.
1: And yeah, and I want to, you know, if people have not read his poetry, but you've read his fiction or you've read his essays, I think, you Anthony, you mentioned people saying that the essays help them explain or understand the novels. And I think that um, in a lot of ways, his poetry is one of the things that gets to the heart of, of his themes mm-hmm. and explains a lot of what he's trying to do in the novels and in in, in the essays too. I, I mean, it's obviously in a, do the nature of poetry in a less sort of direct way, but I think it's the truest um expression of of how he feels about the world and and his place in it and his and his role in it um so so if you can pick up one of his collections of poetry, I definitely recommend you do that there some of them are pretty cheap on Amazon, okay, so let's talk anna Coulter. but Angelina, you have something that you want us to you want something you want to ask us or something well, you need okay, to so.
2: Um, one of the things I always teach my students, kind of one of my first principles, is that front matter matters. (laughs) Um, And and sometimes we can skip over that. So I wanted to draw our readers attention to the front matter, in this case, the epigraph. Uh, Because if an author is going out of his way to give you some clue about how you should be oriented as you enter that work, you always want that information because this is not um this is not a scholarly introduction this is the author himself saying here take this take this piece this is the appetizer right so um in this case it is a quote from a poem by a poet named Edwin Muir now I was extremely tickled to see (laughs) who the poet was because about a month ago or two months ago a friend of mine introduced me to the poetry of Edwin Muir who I had previously never heard of and I was smitten. I mean, just like, it was, it was very much like a Wendell Berry moment where I was just like, where has this guy been all my life? And I went nuts. And I sent his poetry to everyone in the world. Heidi got some texts that were just long poems by Edwin Muir. I was like so pumped up. Um, so he's a Scottish poet who died in 1959. And he's most famous for having, tra- he and his wife translated the works of Kafka into English. Um, But he's quite a remarkable poet, and his themes are all about exile and home. So, of course, totally understand why Wendell Berry would have connected. But I went ahead and found the poem that this is taken from. It's very short, and I thought I'd read it if that's okay. Um, And because I think that this whole poem really does orient us to what Wendell Berry is trying to do in Hannah Coulter, and that's why he put the quote. So this is it. I have been taught by dreams and fantasies, learned from the friendly and the darker phantoms, and got great knowledge and courtesy from the dead, kinsmen and kinswomen, (laughs) ancestors and friends, but from two mainly who gave me birth. Have learned and drunk from that unspending good, these founts whose learned windings keep my feet from straying to the deadly path, that leads into the sultry labyrinth where all is bright and the flare consumes and shrivels the moist fruit. Have drawn at last from time which takes away and taking all things, I'm sorry, and taking leaves all things in their right place, an image of forever one and whole. And now that time grows shorter, I perceive that Plato's is the truest poetry and that these shadows are cast by the true.
1: Is there a is that readily available online?
2: Actually, actually, no. You can find it on my professional page on Facebook. Uh, because every time I googled the line, all uh. I was getting was references to Hannah Coulter. Uh. <laughs> like that's how not well known the poet is. I, I just just kept looping me back to Wendell Berry, and I was like, I'm gonna find this poem if it kills me. So it's on my Facebook page, on the professional page, if people wanna. Get it. I'll put it on the close reads page as well.
1: Yeah, post it there. That'd be great. So where did you? Um... Where did you find it? Like, where did you find the whole poem?
2: On someone's blog. Hmm, okay. That it was it that it was from a collection. Yeah. So it, the the citation is Edwin Muir collected poems Favor and Faber nineteen sixty. So this person had just typed it up out of a book onto a blog.
1: Okay. 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 Um, there's a lot of I'm I'm glad you mentioned the the front matter um, because there's a lot of interesting structural things that he's doing. He's doing here with um with the book and in a book where frankly, mm-hmm. sort of not a ton happens, especially in part one. I mean, obviously a lot happens, like in that a lot of people die, but it, it's not like he's he's creating um like the narrative is so um he covers so much time so quickly. Um and so some of the structural things that he's doing are really interesting. And so what I wanted to what I want to ask you guys about is um, mm-hmm. I guess the question is first impressions, but as you're reading the first part of this book, how did the, the nature of how he was telling the story strike you? Um, did you, did you find it to be, um, the kind of thing where you have to turn the pages a lot, you know, uh, you know, a page turner, did you um, find that you were reading three or four pages and stopping? Did you find that you had to read them all without stopping because you had waited too long and we were about to start the show? Um, (laughs) And Tim, I'll, I'll turn that over to you first. I'm curious about your sort of like your, your, um, your experience with it, you know, like, and yeah, so I guess I'm talking about first impressions, which was what Angelina mentioned I probably would ask about earlier, because I usually do. Um, but I'm thinking in terms of, of how he's telling the story um, and like the, the experience that he's crafting for you just as a craftsman. Yeah.
0: Comparing it comparing to Jaber Crow, um, the, the prose struck me as even more straightforward. There was a little bit less of that wry... Winking that's so much mm, part of yeah. Jaber's personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, seems like. yeah. it's a different voice. Yeah. It's a different voice. Yeah,
2: you know, I have to say that really impressed me.
0: That it's a different like voice. I'm,
2: yeah, I just feel like maybe well, I'm not Mundleberry, obviously, but I just feel like if I wrote a series of first person narratives, they would be exactly the same voice. Mm. <laughs> And everybody would be like, "This is just a thinly veiled version of Angelina, not a forty, you know, not an eighty-seven year old man."
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's that's one of the the real gifts of great writers is like that you can slip in and out of you know imaginative voice, you know, and still make those voices seem whole and consistent. Um, you know, I was listening to a podcast with Ethan Hawke, the actor, who was saying a lot of people can can write like one good novel or could be an actor in one good movie, but slipping in and out of multiple characters and multiple voices is what sets apart, Absolutely. you know, the great creators, the great imagine imagine Imaginators. <laughs> um,
2: I, I buy so, it. Okay. That's, Tim, finish it. that
1: thought then. Go, go on.
0: I, I think some of the spar or the directness or sparseness of the prose makes sense coming out of the way that Hannah was raised. Grandmam. Is she's kind of a no-nonsense personality. There's not a lot of frills. And the life that they lived, it was a hard life. And um, you had to uh, work to keep putting food in your mouth and to keep clothes on your back. And so it seems to me like um, having a a straightforward account of things makes sense coming from a woman who lived that life.
1: And can you go into a little bit more about uh, what you mean when you say straightforward? Can you, I don't know if there's an example you have in mind or something like that. If there's being close reads and all, I have to push, push a little bit deeper, right?
0: There's a lot happening that's under the surface, but there's not a lot of, but it's not ironic. I mean, it's, it's more, it seems to me like what's happening under the surface is um, I can just imagine the all of the feelings that Hannah is experiencing while she recounts um just because it fell most recently in the reading this relationship with Virgil um but there's no the prose is not uh, I'm not being very articulate with it. The prose is not built in such a way
1: <sighs> do you do you mean that it's not? That it, that in the in the simplicity of the prose itself, um, like it's sort of like an objective correlative for how she, how she's looking at the world. Is that what you're getting at, or would you say like, okay, no, it's, it's, like it's counter like to what how she feels? Like she's there's a lot of complexity, but it's but the way she expresses that is like she doesn't she doesn't feel the need to make herself seem more complicated or, like, fancy. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good way it's of like saying It's like keeping
1: it. with her spirit, not her thoughts.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. It's keeping with her spirit, not her thoughts. So maybe, like, to compare this prose or kind of, like, the, the life of Hannah to the life of one of Hemingway's characters, because, I mean, he's almost the he's the standard by which we would kind of like say someone wrote in sparse prose. And, anyway. I, and I
1: know for a fact that Barry is a big Hemingway fan and he has imitated much of the Hemingway style. Like the, that's something that is the that Barry, he, Barry loves the way Hemingway writes.
0: There's, there's a line in um, the sun also rises where the main character Jake goes to confession no he goes to a mass a catholic mass and he and there's just a line that says um his fingers dried in the wind you know as he's walking outside but there's no prior reference to either him taking holy water onto his fingers or crying there's no reference to it. And so the reader is left to kind of try to decipher, well, where, the, where did the damp come from? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't <laughs> yeah, yeah, seem like yeah. anything that Hannah would, Hannah would not include that sort of detail. If she did include that detail, she would tell you, it seems to me like she'd tell you how her fingers were damp.
1: Hmm. So there's, it's, there's not like, she's not, she's not dealing in artifice.
0: Right. And that's what I mean by she's, it's straightforward. Yeah. yeah. She, yeah. she has something to tell you. She's not going to circumlocute. <laughs> she's just going to, she's going to tell you.
1: She's not telling us more than she feels like she needs
0: to. Right. Okay. But I kind of feel you... like
2: that. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was
0: no, just going to,
2: so I, I, I have been thinking about what, what Tim is saying too. And, and I think part of what's going on is that this is a story about telling the story of your life <laughs> She she talks a lot about I had to find my story and this is where I am in the story. And um, so unlike a Hemingway novel, the, the narrative here is extremely intimately connected with the character itself. Right. It's not even just a typical first person narrative. She's at the end of her life, reflecting back on the question, what has been the story of my life I think and I, I feel like that's why she connects the dots for us because she's also connecting them for herself in that moment. Like she's as an old lady having these connections and realizations about um significant moments in her life which she will say didn't seem significant to me at the time, right? Like after the fact I realized how happy I was, that kind of stuff.
1: Hmm. Right, right. Okay. Um, Heidi, let's mm-hmm. let's go to your sort of first impressions. We'll we'll stick sure. with that idea.
3: So the first time that I read this book uh, that I told you about earlier, I read it as a celebration and an inspiration. It was very inspirational for me. Uh, The second time I read it was just a few weeks ago uh, when we were talking about doing it on the show. And I read it just as a quick read before the close read, right? Like a reminder read. And I read it very much as a lament. I was hmm. so sad reading it during that quick read. I, I thought, how could that, I have that, read this? That
1: Hannah is lamenting or that you were, you felt I, limited, Well, so.
3: th- that's a really good question, David. And I think that that goes to my larger point, which that in some senses, it's both. That to Tim's point, the language is, it's not metaphorical, although she uses some metaphors. But it is yeah. less concerned with finding a universal and more con- concerned with telling a particular story, her right. story.
1: Right, yeah, and,
3: that's good. But the language is simple enough that everyone can relate to it. Uh, as Angelina points out, it is the story of an old woman trying to make sense of her life. She is lamenting her losses. She is celebrating her joys. Uh, she's communicating on multiple levels. And we as the readers can find ourselves in her story. Hmm
1: so so she doesn't the 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 point that she doesn't use a lot of metaphors is really interesting because the metaphor is is as as you implied there the sort of it's the expression of a particular through something that yes. is universally experienced but sure. she does she as you mentioned she kind of avoids that but despite sure. that she can get across this particular idea this feeling or this sense or this um an emotion that um or even even like a physical experience, um, she can express right. that uh, by without using something universal and in a way that all of us understand it. And you're saying that that right. is partly because of the simplicity of the prose.
3: I think so, I do. And then when she does use metaphors, which she does... And two consecutive paragraphs at the end of part one, which I'm sure we're all dying to read these aloud. I know Angelina and I were texting about them this morning. When she does use them, she uses the golden thread metaphor. And then she uses the love is a house. Love is a room and a house metaphor. And at that point, everyone is so drawn in because she hasn't been pointing out universal. She's been telling her story. And then when she does, you sit up and you pay attention. Mm.
1: Do you, this is, this guy's, I guess this goes to all of you. Angelina, did you want to? Yes,
2: I do have a a first impression, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, of course. I I Um, wasn't sure if your first impression was your previous comment or if you had another. (laughs) Later,
2: I realized that might've been confusing. Um, (laughs) So the first time, let me start it this way. One of the things I talk to my students, especially in my ancient literature class is how Uh, In ancient literature, the audience already knew how the story ends, right? Everybody knows who picks up the Iliad, right? That Achilles is going to die. So the, the force of the narrative is not what is going to happen, but there's an entirely different kind of tension that is created in the narrative when you already know the ending because everything feels heavy and you know some doom is coming or you know some redemption is coming and it completely changes the tension in the narrative. In fact, my students have gotten to the point now where they actually like that tension, that narrative tension much better than the whole what's going to happen tension of modern stories. Um, That said, what struck me this time is how much... Wendell Berry is giving you two simultaneous narratives at the same time so that she's telling what is happening, but she also keeps projecting forward, right? So that she's, she's telling you the end of the story at the beginning of the story, right? I hadn't yet met my second husband then, and I was going to lose one husband, but unbeknownst to me, I was going to get another husband. Um, So while she is recounting this incredible grief and loss, she's also telling you that there is a way out of this grief and loss. And so in terms of the narrative structure, I found that fascinating. The first time I read this book, I was in a season of deep loss and grief. And that is all I remembered of this book, was the pain of just pressing on the bruise of loss and grief. This time I'm in an entirely different stage of my life, and that is so. Like when I said we should
1: do it, you were like super,
2: right? Exactly. No, I was very <laughs> nervous about how this was going to affect. I actually texted Heidi this morning before I started reading and said, "I'm in a good, happy place. Why am I going to read this book that's going to rip my heart out?" But I'm so glad that I am because this time, what I am seeing is this profound theological truth, which is that. Even in the moments of our deepest grief, the seeds of the redemption have been planted at the same time, and we cannot see them, but they're happening at the same time, the grief and the redemption. And when she says, but life will call you out, grief can't hold you, life is going to call you out. That was incredibly redemptive to me. So I'm I'm seeing the simultaneous grief and redemption going through the book because of how she's telling the story
1: one thing is that one thing i was thinking of as i was kind of looking at the way he was telling the story and the structure it speaks to exactly what you're talking about there because i was i was noticing how early in the book she is basically going through a series of comparisons so she's sort of and essentially she's she's introducing us to all these older women one after another mm-hmm. um or yeah. whether it's even like uh, ivy to her grandmother to um virgil's aunt to Virgil's parents, um, all these different women. She gives, she introduces us to them one after another, or he does, I guess. One after, so, just we'll, we'll say he does because I'm talking structure here. And in in as much as he's doing that, he is essentially setting up a comparison um, or a model or or a, or a anti-model, so to speak, for our protagonist here. So, and and in doing that, he's sort of creating for us themes of of um. Good, like, what it, what is a a good character look like in in this world? Like, what is what are the what are the characteristics that that a positive character is going to look like, and what are the characteristics that you know a negative character are going to look like? And they're in a sense thinks she can. She, on the one hand, she can become Ivy if she allows bitterness to take over, <laughs> or she can become these other women, like her grandmother, if she remains hopeful. And that contrast speaks to what you're saying in terms of how he's crafting these two narratives going on at the same time, which leads me into the question I was actually just about to ask um, before you had your first, you expressed your first impression there. Is this book, this is, might seem like a silly question and it would have seemed even more like a silly question before you said that, Angelina. Is this a sad book? I've asked this about a lot of different books that we've discussed. Uh, Heidi, you spoke about how when you first read it, it was inspirational. It was like a triumph or whatever. And then when you read your quick read, you felt that it was more sad um angelina's expressing some of the hopefulness of it the the hope of redemption um tim i'll go to you first again um, do you think that this is a is this is this a sad book and obviously let's let's not i don't want to talk about this is the question i want to come back to on our very last episode because i don't want to talk about like we know what's going to happen or the narrative is sad because obviously it's sad that her, that that Virgil dies and then yeah. you know, she's, she's sort of semi orphaned and things like that. That's all that is sad stuff, but at its, in its most essential nature. Um, and in the way he's telling the story, is
0: this a sad book? I'll keep this really short because I'm the only one of the four of us who's not read this. I my, End of chapter one, answer is yes. I mean, here's the last, second to last and last paragraph, uh, page five in my book. This is the story of my life that while I lived, it weighed upon me and pressed against me and filled all my senses to overflowing and now is like a dream dreamed. So close to the end now, what do I look forward to? Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Some morning I pray, I'll have the good happiness of the man who woke up dead, who Burley Coulter used to tell about. This is my story, my giving of thanks. When I got into reading that, I thought, okay, here we go. <laughs> this is this is gonna be, this is gonna yank the tears out. Here we go, just like be ready for it. But um, I've not read the book. You all are much more qualified to answer the question.
1: Well, but still. I mean, yeah, from what you've so, read so far, from what you've read so far, and in the way he's telling the story, would you say then that he's, in other words, is he trying to express, like, do you think he would want us to feel like this is a sad book? I guess is what, maybe another way of putting it.
0: Like, if I asked him,
1: do you I, believe yeah. Hannibal, like, were you trying to make us feel sad?
0: What, what would you say? I believe Wendell Berry would say, if you don't cry <laughs> at the end of this, I've failed as an author. <laughs> No, I don't know if you would say that, but I think... (laughs) Yeah, I think it's mourning. It seems like it's going to be a mournful book.
1: But then he does end that first, you know, you read the last line, and I'm glad you did. This is my story of giving thanks. So it's mournful, and yet there's that sense of hope. And that's in those two paragraphs, we get, you know, the the, uh, written sort of analog for what Angelina is expressing about the two narratives going together, and one being hopeful and one being... Mm. um, Well, sad, I guess. Angelina, would you then say that this is a not a sad book?
2: I'm really struggling with how to answer that. After my first read, I would have said yes, Um, but I don't know that I'm ready to say no. I I think I'd have to really carefully define "sad." So it's
1: yeah, that's what I was waiting for someone to say. It's sad without
2: being hopeless or despairing. (laughs) I mean, to me, it's like it's sad. Like life is sad, right? There's just hard, mournful moments as part of a larger redemptive narrative that that each of our lives are going through. So about part of my life, I could say my life is sad. And about other parts I could say, my life is super happy and joyful. And I kind of feel like that's Hannah's story. Maybe that's everyone's story.
1: Hmm. 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 Heidi.
3: Oh, I completely agree with what Angelina just said. I think if this is a sad book, then human life is sad. Like this is, Such a human book, such a human story. So, yes, it is very sad. And he's making a larger point about the nature of a generation and of a lifestyle in America, uh, a way of life. Um, The loss of that is sad. However, all of that said, I would not say that this is a sad book in the way that more modern stories are sad. This is a hopeful book, a redemptive book, uh, a book, as as he says, when um, even in the dark or most in the dark, shining out at times like gold stitches in a piece of embroidery. This is darkness mm. and gold stitches.
2: Right, mm. right.
1: One of the things that I really appreciate about what y'all are saying is 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 that most books, even by Christian authors, in order to see the hopefulness um, if it's about a world passing away, say, or the end of a relationship or or whatever it is, even if the point of the book is that there is hope to be had and to be to be believed in, um, and that there's good coming out of it, we don't see that. there aren't cl- there are very, rarely truly um, visible clues to that until you get to the end of the book and you see that whole puzzle together. But Barry's presenting the story in a way that is like it's very there are sad things that are happening that kind of rip your heart out. Mm-hmm. But he never, at any point from the first, from literally the first line on, he never ever forgets the hopefulness that mm-hmm. that is woven through.
2: And, and, and that comes from the narrative structure of her being this older woman reflecting back on her life. And mm-hmm. for of the life of me, I'm not going to remember where I just read this because I have been on a reading tear lately. So I do not know if one of you recognize this quote, please tell me where I got it from. I may have been from something from C.S. Lewis. You may have but, made it
1: up. Let's be honest. Okay.
2: It's brilliant. And I made it up. But <laughs> the, the, the quote was that at the end of your life, um, when you realize that your life has been redeemed, the redemption, this has got to be Lewis, the redemption at the end of your life works backwards. Maybe this was in The Great Divorce. I think that's where I read. it. Yeah. Yes. Okay, thank you. The Great it Divorce, right? So at the, the end of divorce. your life, when you have that moment of, yes, I have been redeemed, that the redemption works backwards, and you realize that all of your life, even the bad stuff, has actually been redeemed. Like It changes your entire perspective about the bad stuff depending on how you end, right? So if you end up in hell, mm. you look back and everything about your life is tragic and hard and even the joyful moments are sad and tragic and hard, right? But if at the end you've been redeemed and you're in heaven, you look back and the whole story of your life then is the story of your redemption. And so it redeems right. even the bad things that happened. Mm. And I feel like that's kind of what's going on here.
3: Yes. Because well, she's geez, at the that. end of
2: the life, right? It changes
3: mm-hmm. Yeah. She talks a lot about the redemptive uh, nature of memory mm-hmm. and how in remembering her life, even in that action, she's redeeming it. And that, like the,
1: the, the very action of remembering.
3: Yes. And telling her own story. And <laughs> I sat down with my daughter and told her, I thought, I don't think I've ever told my kids the story of my life before. Hmm. After reading this a few weeks ago and when I put them to bed at night now, I'm just telling them stories, thinking this is a profound way to pass on to this next generation, this the redemptive story of our lives. And I, I think that's so much a part of this. And David, I love what you said about the first line. The first line of the book, I picked him up in my arms and I carried him home. Mm. It's uh
1: Interestingly, it's a first-person line, not even from the narrator.
3: (laughs) Yes. And it's a story, and it's about a man. And it immediately brought to my mind, this is Wendell Berry's vision for his writing, right? We -hmm. are picking up the past generations and bringing them home in the hearts of those of us who are here now. And I also thought, uh, that's got to be a reference to the Aeneid, right? Uh, right, Aeneas carrying Anchises. Anchises. Yes. Yes out of Troy which is burning and this is Nathan Coulter carrying is it his grandfather? Yes. Yes, his grandfather home. And this is, I think, the whole point of this novel is we take this past generation and we bring them home in the hearts of those of us who are carrying on their legacy. Yes. Yes. And, and I love no- that you
2: brought up memory because I'm I'm marked that a lot in this first section. This so like you know, again, mm-hmm. if you want to talk about how do you read um, a, a novel, a microcosm of the entire novel is in the, in the first chapter, a microcosm of a short story right. is in the first paragraph. Right They're, They are setting the stage. That is how you know what to look for. And so what has been I mean, look at the, the chapter title, the story continuing the first line. I picked him up the second line. This is the last of the stories of his childhood through this whole yes. section. It's memory. It's generation and it's story. And it's the fact that at some point, people only exist in the memory via story, Mm -hmm. right? And then now this is the story she is telling of her life. All of those things are connected, place and home and memory and story and the past. The past, I mean, he's saying the past really only exists in the stories that you tell.
1: Right, and you know, there's no theme that is more important. I would, oh, I don't know. I don't wanna speak for him, but there's no theme... There are Mm -hmm. few themes that show up up as consistently um, and with as much passion in all of Barry's work from his poetry to his essays to his novels uh, as the theme of memory. I mean, he's got a novel called Remembering. He's got another novel called The Memory of Old Jack. Um, He has... um, I mean, I scads of poems with that same theme. Um, whether it's you're remembering something about nature, or nature itself is remembering something about itself, and that's what the seasons are—the um, renewal of memories. Um, and it, uh, it's interesting that he that he um, he talks about. Angela, I think you just said something about how. How did you just put it? Something about how, which of you said it was in the in the stories that you tell about the past? Yeah,
2: I said that. That the okay. past only exists in the stories that you tell about it.
1: See, now I can't use this point of reference whether I heard a male voice <laughs> or a female voice. <laughs> but in the last, at the very end of, of um, section one, when she's talking about how Virgil went missing, um, mm. and how nobody ever found him or learned, you know, learned what happened to his body or whatever, um, she, she says this... Um, She says this is on page 58. I don't think there's any other editions other than the one that's been floating around. So that's pretty safe to say that's on page 58. The girl I was when I fell in love with him and married him began to be missing too, becoming a memory along with him. Mm -hmm. I was changing and the world was changing. I was going on into time where Virgil no longer was. Now looking back after so many years, I still can recognize that young couple. I know them well and I pity them for their lost life, but I am no longer one of them. Mm-hmm. Those lovers fled away a long time ago, and that idea of fleeing ties back to the Virgil idea, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, like Virgil had to flee; he had to carry his what his father on his shoulders and, and go the son create. By the hand a,
2: and the household gods
1: had to create a new place. He had to flee away and create a new home in the wreckage of what had come after that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, even the knowledge of that story, the what happens to Virgil, I think. Goes a long way in terms of understanding mm-hmm. uh, what Barry's doing here. Go ahead, and then I want to ask him a question.
2: So I love, I absolutely love Heidi that you brought up the the Virgil thing. Obviously, we've got a character named Virgil, and and that's a clear Aeneas reference at at the beginning. So I just finished teaching the Aeneid, and. So I used that image of Aeneas fleeing with his father on his shoulders, holding his son's hand and his household gods with him as as the overriding image of everything that Virgil is trying to say in this book. Because unlike the Odyssey, which is about a man getting home and along the way, he loses everyone and everything, but he makes it home. Right. But the Aeneid is not that story it's not mm. enough for Aeneas to make it home. Aeneas has to bring the whole community with him. The, so the gods, the children, the grandparents, everybody. It's, it's about establishing a new community, not about one man's quest for home. And Barry brings that up in several of Hannah's speeches, like the one, oh man, this, this gutted me, when she says, when I fell in love with Virgil, I did not fall in love with a man. I fell in love with a community and his parents and his home. And Barry just keeps making these points. And the same thing in jaber Crow. It's not about the individual right? It's the whole community. It's the past. It's the presence. It's the faith. It's the, it's the whole thing. And I mean, as we're talking about the Virgil thing, I'm thinking about how like maybe Hannah is Aeneas because, um, or, or Nathan perhaps, but but at least Hannah at this point, because she's lost the first husband and now she has to get the new husband to, to move forward. And, and that's part of the home and the place. And he keeps tying place and home together um, in an interesting way too.
1: For. For future reference, one of the things that I'm going to be looking for in this reading is whether it's possible that Hannah. We know, well, we know that Wendell Berry is obsessed with Dante. Is Hannah mm-hmm. actually Dante hmm. who falls in love with Virgil? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, is there something yeah. going on there? But I, Tim has not spoken in like 12 minutes. So, well, I'm you know, I, out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's I have a question. Yeah, I have a question for you, Tim, and I am asking you this question first in fear and trembling. So, don't fail me here, okay? <laughs> are you ready I'm ready um what does Wendell Berry get so well in Hannah Coulter about being a woman <laughs> oh buddy me to start this? <laughs> oh no 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 I'm definitely gonna ask the actual women this but
2: no I'm you far ma- more interested
1: in what the you two have known say. you have known many women in your life in various sorts of you know relationships and scenarios and from work settings to your mom to whatever. So I'm curious about in what you know about the relationships with women that you've had, what is it that Barry captures so well about women? Um I'm not asking you don't have to like try to get inside the head of a woman. That's for the actual I'll ask that actual question to the women. Yeah,
2: like women <laughs> but, um, know about other women. That's
1: funny. <laughs> but what is it that like people always tell me When I talk to them about this book, they're like, how did a man write in the head of a woman so well? And like, my response is, well, that's actually not that uncommon. But what is it that Barry in particular captures
0: about women so well in this?
1: I I talked there for a few minutes to
0: give you a chance to think. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I will tell you one thing. (laughs) I I, can ramble on. I can ramble on. Please do string it out, David. Um, Maybe (laughs) the show will end before I have to answer the question. I think one thing that he does very well is Hannah does, is very reluctant about Virgil until she um decides. And then when she decides, she's all in. Mm.
1: Okay, now give us more about what this says about all women
0: ever. <laughs> David, my answer to that is no, I will not do that. <laughs> wise, wise. Do you, so,
1: okay. So, she, so she. So that scenario of she sort of is biding her time and watching and waiting and sort of testing. Is that mm-hmm. what you're kind of saying? And then, but when she decides that he is the right person for her, she is all in and she's loyal and all that kind of stuff. That's what you're saying.
0: Yeah. And what <laughs> did I read? It? Did test- I read that? Did I no, read no, it to no, that no. in the wrong way? No, you got it. You got what I was trying to say. I. I think also she is um, she's not just scrutinizing one particular thing about Virgil, um, you know, whether he's financially responsible, whether or not he's good looking. I mean, it's uh, an entire way of life. I mean, Angelina just mentioned this, but it's, it's his whole way of being that she seems to be quietly observing. And Mm. when she says, yes, it, she really means it. She really means it because it all adds up.
1: Hmm. One of the things before I turn it over to the women to express their thoughts on this, one of the things that I appreciate about the way he um, sort of reveals the character of Hannah and the other women in the book, um, but also the way he, he has always revealed his male characters as well is that he doesn't deal in stereotypes, right? Or even like he doesn't have to reveal a character through, um, are even archetypes in a lot of ways, like these are individual, particular people, as Heidi was kind of alluding to earlier. Um, and he doesn't have to like rely on the things that we typically think of. Oh, that's what makes a woman a woman, and that's what makes a man a man. These are like particular people, and that's why I think hmm. that we can look at Hannah and say, "Man, he really got into the head of that woman. How did he do that?" Well, it's not because he understands women, although I'm sure that he does, and he's been married for a long time, and all those. And, he, and I know that his wife helped him with this book, but. He, he is able to get into the head of particular people. And in as much as that, he can create these really well drawn characters that, that all of us can look at and go, that's crazy, like, you know, um, that, he can, that he can do that so sort of profoundly and with such clarity. Um, I felt mm. the same thing. I mean, I don't look at how he goes, say, what he says about Jaber Crow and say, oh man, I can't believe he got in the head of a man. You know, who's, obviously that's, no one says it quite like that because it's not the surprise that a man would understand a man. But what he does is he, he, he can create specific particular uh, characters in such a way that the universal comes through, um, and that's what makes them relatable and real. Uh, real characters. Would you say, Heidi, that as a woman, that is true of your experience with her, or is it? Or do I see that? Is does that work for me because I'm a man looking at a woman and I have no idea about women? <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, I would never say that to you, David. Uh, I I do agree with that. I think that what he gets right about women is you know there are some stereotypes that are there for a reason that don't fit everybody around the entire universe right that aren't true for every single woman or man in the whole world but are those stereotypes exist because it's generally true and so i would say that one thing that he does extremely well about women is the tendency of women to orient themselves and their own self-evaluation to the relationships of their life. Um, For example, what he says about, uh, through Hannah, about motherhood, I I defy any mother to read the following sentence without a, a very deep response. It's this sentence. To know that I was known by a new living being who had not existed until she was made in my body by my desire and brought forth into the world by my pain and strength, that changed me. I've never read a greater description of of motherhood Mm. and the emotion of being a mother than that, which is written by a man. Mm. So I, And the way that Hannah orients herself to her community and to the individual relationships in her life, not in a needy way, actually from a position of strength and service, but she does. And that, I think, is very profoundly um, true about my own experience as a woman and those of the women I know. Angelina, what do you think?
2: I underline that passage, too how to answer this. I I absolutely agree that this is a woman, not every woman. I mean, I'm chuckling Mm -hmm. to myself because Tim's description of how Hannah evaluates a suit, or I'm thinking, oh yeah, ask Heidi if that's how this woman does it. And she will tell you no, (laughs) Um, because I could not be less like Hannah Coulter in so many other ways. I'm literally the person who has to be all in to figure out if I want to be all in. So I am the opposite of Hannah in that way. Um, So I remember though, reading this for the first time and thinking, man, Wendell Berry gets me. And so I'm trying to figure out Mm -hmm. how to navigate my answer without having to give my entire life story. But what I think that he captures so well is what it is like to be a woman in deep pain, especially if you are in a, a mother, because there's this weird contradiction that happens to you, that you have all this personal grief you have to bear, but then you have this child who has these needs. And you're trying to mitigate their own pain and loss. So he he captures, and I know Heidi knows what I'm talking about. There's there's almost a schizophrenia that runs through women because we're, we're so conflicted all the time, right? Like we want to be everything for our children and we want to protect them at the same time that we're carrying all of these heavy burdens. And sometimes our own needs have to go to the back burner because of, of well, our children.
1: A sort of like... Um conflict or or what can be easily experienced as a conflict between like individuality and like the sense of seeking a sense of purpose in yourself and at the same time providing a sense of purpose and place for your children.
2: Yes, and how that can some, sometimes
1: feel like a conflict.
2: Right, but so but the weird and this is what he's so good at capturing that the conflict is actually the answer to itself. What I mean is she's in such grief. She almost can't bear to look at this child because, because when they all look at the baby, all they think is poor baby. It was born into this loss, right? It doesn't have this mm-hmm. father. And so there's this real pain that comes from looking at this child and knowing this child will not get the life that it was meant to have. But the mm-hmm. irony is that the child itself then becomes the way out of the grief. So there's all these moments when you're in a situation like that, where you think if I didn't have these kids, I could just fall apart. I wouldn't have to be strong for them. And yet the fact that you have to be strong for this kid is the thing that gets you over the loss and out of the grief. And she says that, that the child called her back to life. And so it's this very intense irony and it's full of complicated feelings that you just wish you could be by yourself and fall apart, but you have to be strong for this child. And that's so unfair, but it is the thing that saves you. Hmm. And I think he captures that, that whole paradox.
1: Um, shoot, I forgot what I was going to (laughs) ask. It was about... You
3: haven't answered the question, David.
1: Yeah, David, come on. (laughs) What do I think? Being the host is the life. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Cushy.
3: (laughs) (laughs) What does Wendell Um, Berry get right about women?
1: Well, I did make my comment about how I think, you know, it's one of the things he gets right about all characters is he, he doesn't try to deal in this, the stereotypes and what i mean by that is like a lot of the times yeah. even in good novels with deep with rich characters like one of the things that if we want to if we want we want like we want have characters with women and the way they interact with each other we feel like there has to be some kind of scene where there's like some catty fighting or something like that right like it's the it's, mm-hmm. or like if there's two men there has to be like this Uh, Test of like their manhood against each other or something. And Barry is just so uninterested in those things. Like you'll even see even the things that you'll see done well in like a Jane Austen novel, for example, or done well in a great Western novel. I'm not saying those things aren't true in some to some extent, but Barry isn't interested in those kind of things, and that's why those there's not like the drama is very rarely the drama between two characters. Almost never in this book is the drama of the novel what is going to happen between two characters. Except you might say, yeah. well, like, is Virgil going to come home, or, but you kind of already know from the very first paragraph that he doesn't, um, or is Virgil going to end up with Hannah? Like, even the, the those kind of questions, which are typically the central drama, the central narrative drives of a of a novel. Um, those things he's not interested in like that he's interested in the there's something internal going on and he's interested in how people are responding to things and how they're remembering things and like that is the drama itself of the novel how we maintain our memory um, how we hold on to memories that matter to us and how we filter out the ones that we need to hold on to and the ones that we um, are better off sort of um, putting in a different corner and 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 you know Forgetting them for a time. Do um, you think
2: that is reminiscent of Brideshead revisited in that way? I mean well, thinking about that a lot in this conversation. That that's also someone at the end of his life, you know, after having gone through a conversion, looking back
1: until we there. have
3: faces. Heidi, <laughs> <Hi>, that's the <laughs> <no laughs> that's the book
2: that shall read not read that be that named.
3: <laughs> be. All right. Brideshead,
1: yes. So well, yes, but, We all love Brideshead. Yeah, no, Let's go there. So I was thinking, I've actually been thinking about Brideshead. It's come up in my memory several times since we've been talking here as you guys have been answering the questions. But the mm-hmm. difference is between Brideshead and this, I think, and I'm, you can correct me on this, I think that that sense of hopefulness is not there from the beginning. It's, it's an example right. of the kind of book where you have to get the whole picture to see the sense of hopefulness that is there. You mm-hmm. can't, you're can't. you not going to get it like in the first paragraph or the first line. You know, was is not sort of... Um, He sort of strings us along, not in a negative way but just his narrative sort of strings us along through the sort of morass of hopelessness before we can get the whole picture and, and feel the sense of hope. Barry's not interested. Barry's not stringing us on at all. He's telling us all his themes and all and what this book is yeah, about. And in that sense,
2: I was also thinking about Howard Zinn while we're talking. And we know that Wendell Berry, of course, is, is a fan of that book, but this idea that he's mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. letting the reader get sucked into where you think they will, like, is Hannah and Virgil going to get together? What's going to happen next? Is he Is she going to marry Nathan and then Virgil's going to come back? And, you know, like, and he's not letting us go any of there, right? He's he's not letting that tension come. He's diverting us to more to the internal life of these characters. Um, and, of course, I think Barry's narrative voice is very similar to Forrester's. I mean, in, I would not be able to break that down, like, a dissertation level. I mean much more in, like, I was actually just talking to somebody about this, that with Barry and Forrester, I feel a little bit hypnotized as I read it. Does that make sense to you? Like, I just it's get all
1: that subordinate so— causes. I, I- it's, it's, he, is that what it is? I, I'm pretty sure it's the subordinate clauses.
2: I seriously told somebody this week that I feel hypnotized by both I was, tr- I was
1: trying to figure this out last night when I was reading. And I I pretty... Maybe it was sometime in a future episode, I'll break down what I mean. But I'm pretty sure it's what he's doing with subordinate clauses. Because usually, mm-hmm. like if he was truly being Hemingway, he'd be creating two to three sentences. But he's not creating mm-hmm. sentences, but he's also not using semicolons. So he's like creating this pattern, which is mm-hmm. an anti... It's like a non-traditional sentence structure. But it doesn't read that way, and so like the relationship between what mm-hmm. your eyes are doing and your brain is doing, and how you're feeling what he's writing, are almost in contradiction with each other. I swear that that's what he's doing in the individual. Okay,
0: sense. I'm David, fascinated with this. <laughs> David, can you can you find a sentence? And
2: do you think Forrester's that- doing that too? Gosh, this yeah, is yeah. Forrester
1: great. does it too. Um, yeah. So okay well i read one earlier i think at the end of 58 there so this is just i mean i haven't i didn't mark specific examples to bring up on the show but this is one that i'd read and i noticed it um so you see how that line now looking back after so many years i still can recognize that young couple Mm -hmm. i know them well and i pity them so that traditionally would say now looking back after so many years i can still recognize that young couple young couple End stop i know them well and i pity them for their lost life but uh-huh. he basically is taking two sentences there and he's combining them together. And the comma there would often be, you'd often like if you were teaching students or whatever, you'd be like, this is an independent thought, you know, there would be all these rules that you'd probably say he's breaking here. But, but there's like a poetry to what he's doing there. Um, yes. And so he talks yeah. in his book on William Carlos Williams poetry about how the essence of poetry is the line. Like if you were writing yes. prose, it would, there is no reason at all under any circumstances for the line not to go on into eternity but the very essence of poetry is that you start a new line the only reason we do lines in prose is because it has to fit onto the page but what he's doing here is he's kind of doing a prose version of that sort of idea where that Mm -hmm. i know them well clause there with separated by two commas it takes it changes the flow of how you're reading
2: yes Mm -hmm. yes yes this makes sense i all because i also make the case that wundleberry's prose reads like poetry to me and ironically Mm -hmm. his poetry often reads like prose but but, yeah,
1: well, yeah, and that's so that that's a matter of definition, and like if you're if you think his poetry reads like prose, that has more to do with how with the kind of poetry you traditionally read,
2: well, yes, and that has to do actually with what he's doing with form, and I didn't mean that as a criticism, oh, no, it's I just didn't that, that
1: way, yeah
2: uh, so like when I read his novels, I feel that hypnotizing effect. I don't necessarily feel that when I read his poetry, but I love his poetry.
1: So, like if you so we're talking about the hip the hypnosis that he puts you in. So let's go through mm-hmm. that again. Like now, comma, subordinate looking back after so many years, he has that little now word. I don't like he doesn't need to really add now there.
2: No, that's strictly for rhythm. Yeah.
1: So I, I still can recognize that young young couple. And then it feels like there's supposed to be a pause, but the comma is only so much of a pause, it's not like a full pause. I know them well. That could be a period there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I pity them for their lost life. He could have said I know them well. I pity them for their last life. Like there's all that rhythm as you're speaking over there. And in the last two sentences, he kind of, but I no longer am one of them. Like mm-hmm. it's this full, complete thought with a few words, with very few words.
3: Well, and, and that, levels, but I am no longer one, one, of one of them is mm-hmm. so powerful because of the sentence before it. Yeah,
1: right. It
2: almost is like a closing couplet. It has that same effect. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Like in a sonnet yes. where it's bum blah, 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 and then there's the, the punch with the couplet at the end.
1: Yep, for sure. But that's why I think, so I think what he's doing there is there's that, as you put it, that poetic, the poetic nature of his prose. But I think he's creating the subordinate clauses almost like the next, like you create that next line in the poem. And then, and maybe you have like one line that's a little long and especially if it's free verse or blank verse. So then you have a little bit long, long. That's a little bit, a line that's a little bit long. And then if you're William Carlos Williams, you go to the next line and maybe you indent the line like four or five words. And then the next, that line only has two or three words. And then you know, for, for emphasis or whatever, for whatever reason, And then you go to the next line, and that line is also six or seven, you know words long. I'm not good we don't need to get into all the actual terms of poetry here. But like there's rhythm there, but that that hypnosis comes from him sticking that 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 two word line in there and indenting it over. That's essentially what he's doing by creating those those subordinate clauses there. And it forces us to read differently than we normally do so by because mm-hmm. our mental capacity is being like is being asked to do something new it's almost like watching the the, the watch or whatever swing back and forth
3: mm-hmm.
1: because you're going from one side to the other and he does this all the time right. like line after line paragraph after paragraph so yeah, i think that's why right. that hip, there's that hypnosis that comes into it
2: gosh i'm so glad i mentioned that that's fascinating i definitely did not know why why it had that effect on okay, me
1: i don't know if it's true that's I don't, like i'm sure there's some psychologist that would be like uh, this you're is a dissertation
2: is david run with it this is awesome <laughs> the hypnotic effect of barry and forrester and i will be your test subject you can just read out loud to me and watch me just like get into like a peaceful place in my mind will put me up to the electrodes well, Look, Angelina, you, know, science you and
1: i and... talk about all the time how this is the kind of thing that like when i'm we're talking about novels this is the kind of thing that matters to me above all else right
3: like yes the, syntax, the language the yes where's
1: the way it's presented like i you could give me like what what was it you said you care about you said to me one time you care about the journey, that the story, going on.
2: the story matters more to me than the language.
1: Right. Um, but
2: there are, t- but, but, you know, it's so interesting because I would say that the two exceptions of that are Barry and Forrester of which whom both of them, I feel like just say what I don't care, read a grocery list, read the phone book. I don't care. <laughs> just keep that narrative voice coming. It's just like, I'm serious. Like it just chills. It's like aromatherapy for my ears, right? It's just, woo. When you, make, relaxed.
1: you mentioned voice and that's a key part of this because this is not just like, I mean, it's, it's something Barry is skilled at doing. And it's part of being him being a poet. But it is most importantly for this context, it is the voice of Hannah Coulter that he is creating. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, it is one of the things that is um unique about her that that makes her voice what it is. Um mm. and so that narrative <laughs> that's that syntactical choice he's making or those syntactical patterns he's creating are those are not just Wendell Berry, That's Hannah Coulter. And that's one of the ways we can get to know her.
2: Right, Don't you feel? am I the only one who feels this? like I don't feel like I'm reading this as much as I'm sitting down next to this old lady and she's just telling me the story. Tim, I don't even know if that makes sense that I feel like I'm hearing this rather than reading,
1: <laughs> Tim, on that 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 idea, did you find at what pace did you read this book?
0: Slowly very slowly like over in,
1: multiple c- sittings and so
0: forth uh probably three sittings yeah when, when you guys were talking about this i was just comparing it because i always do i was comparing the kind of prose and the pace to that of a play and i think there's a really interesting juxtaposition because in a play you you don't really have a play if you don't have a character that is pursuing something it is an it is a genre that is built on pursuit. It's built on action. So
1: you have to have a reason to go off stage and come back on.
0: Exactly. Everything you have to have a reason. So whether it be Hamlet pursuing revenge or Head of Gabbler pursuing. Pursued by
1: bear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or Head Gabbler is she's pursuing the laurel wreaths in her hair. This vision of kind of like a fully flourishing life. They're active and pursuing it in both of these berry books. The care they're they're elegies, they're not plays, but they're elegies, they're poems of reflection. They are laments for something that's been lost. And I think that strikes me that it's just so in keeping with what I understand, maybe the the plot of of barry's life not just as an author maybe maybe just even as a man is it's it's remembering things that have been lost to these particular characters because it seems like so much of his so much of what he cares about is remembering and valuing and even preserving those things that are falling away that are that are goods, that are part of not just a former world, that are part of like an essential, like essential habits of human communities and of human beings. And he is rightly concerned that they're being, um, they're being lost. They're not being remembered. And what is going to happen to us by failing to remember? And that's just not, that's so, difficult that sort of a thematic pursuit is would be so difficult to get across in a play because the circumstances of the play are very very immediate you have to The main character has to accomplish something before the play has ended
1: preferably even before you leave stage yeah preferably before you leave stage hmm well listen, we have been talking for going on an hour and a half. So, um, I'm going to ask you each for final thoughts. Um Angelina, I'll let you go first. Um and um let's let's just maybe let's go let's say what are some things you're going to be looking for um as you as we read and discuss over the next few weeks. Mm-hmm.
2: I think I'll definitely be looking to see how he develops the the things that we saw in the first couple of paragraphs, uh, this idea of story and memory. And I'm definitely going to be looking for the Aeneid stuff and to see uh, what what else is going on there. Hmm.
1: Uh, Tim, I'll let you have the second
0: final word. David, I don't know yet what I'm reading for. Honestly, I feel like this is not a long book. I don't feel like I've even scratched the surface of this book. I don't even have, ask me next week. I'll have a, just a okay. really cogent answer. You're
1: going to write an essay. Yeah. Um, we're we're going to get like a, uh, like a end of the news, like commentary, like written, like an, it's like an essay. We're going to uh, diagram
2: and, all of the next chapters. <laughs> just all the them. Yeah. diagram all of them.
1: Do you, um, Tim, do you have any, okay, so you don't know exactly what you're looking for, but do you have anything you want to add to any of the discussion? Well, um, one thing,
0: it's funny, my role, sometimes I feel like my role in um, close reads is to be a little bit ignorant, which comes naturally, but to be (laughs) ignorant because I think it's helpful to have someone who is sort of stumbling through this for the first time So many of the books that we've read, these are first reads for me. And I kind of like putting myself in a position, I don't do any research, I don't do any sort of pre-plotting or anything like that. I just let the book wash over me, which typically makes for a pretty shallow first read. Um, And so that's, that's part of the reason why I'm having a hard time conjuring what I'm looking for is because I like to just allow the book to just carry me along the second time i read something it's a lot easier to look for how is how is the author doing this and what is this character seeking like on a real deep soulful level but right now i'm just trying to keep up
1: hey that's fair enough all right heidi you, this is your first appearance on close reads so i will let you have the final final word
3: wait Uh, So one thing, we didn't talk about this at all today, but this is what I'm looking for in this book is this idea of uh, consolations. Uh, I noticed them over and over again in all of her grief and her, you know, very emotionally starved childhood and is how Hannah pays attention to goodness, even if it's not the goodness that she wants to receive, she notices. She's a noticer, which is something I love about her. Uh, but on uh, the bottom of page fifty-seven, I'm just going to read this. This will be the my final word, which is Wendell Berry's word. He says, "I began to trust the world again, not to give me what I wanted, for I saw that it could not be trusted to do that, but to give unforeseen goods and pleasures that I had not thought to want, and so unknowingly, I was being prepared for Nathan." and for my life with him when that time would come. And of course, part two is when we encounter that with her. So I'm mm. I'm going to be watching for that, those consolations.
1: I love that she points out how that section, was it the Tim that read that? And like the last line of it was, oh, but it was back when we were talking about whether it's a sad book. Mm. She mentioned that the last line where it says, this is my, my story of my gratefulness or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like to be a, your point to be someone who is grateful mm-hmm. despite the things that she has been through you have to be a noticer yeah you have to notice things that are good even if you were not that was not the thing that you wanted most yes
3: Mm-mm. all um, happy so that's people my are noticers <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. all right well thanks to all of you i really enjoyed this conversation i, th- I have a feeling Listeners might be into this. Might be into this book a little bit, based on the the early feedback and all that sort of stuff. Um, the Facebook group is abuzz with people who are saying they're crying, which is exactly what I was hoping for. So mission yes. yes. accomplished.
2: My stock in Kleenex, best <laughs> financial move ever.
1: <laughs> that sounds like insider trading. Um, <laughs> so, um, my goal all along was things have been a little bit too happy after reading. <laughs> After work, you felt like we
2: needed a good cry I'm,
1: I'm not okay with that. So we need to spend a few weeks crying together. So we to take things down hey, a
2: notch. I cried through that entire Birdie Wooster book because I don't have jeeves, okay? <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. You're making, that's a good point. Maybe we maybe the reality is we should all be crying when we read Bernie Wooster. <laughs>
2: this is actually what I said about J. Crow the first time that I read it was it filled me with a longing for something I did not know I had lost. But PG Woodhouse also does that
1: to me. <laughs> hey, did you grow up with a butler? That's what I want to know. Was there like a secret butler in your childhood that you're longing for? Mom, um, <laughs> mom. I wish.
3: Yeah. I wish. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Well, um, so maybe, the, maybe Hannah Coulter is the story of a butler as well. Who knows? Um, for Tim McIntosh, and Angelina Stanford and Heidi White and for all of us here at the Cersei Institute, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening to Close Reads. We will talk to you next time. Enjoy reading Hannah Coulter.